I'm so glad you're here today, and actually, I'm really glad. In fact, Sharon and I are glad to be back. Not just because, well, we're glad to be back with you. It was quite sunny, it was quite warm, and as you can see on the screen, that's what I looked at each morning as I looked out my back door. Now, we were suffering, I I get that, okay? But what was so nice is that literally it was warm, the sun was coming down, it was a great time for us to nurture our souls. But the next slide, um, I had an opportunity to be able to go to a sister converged church. It's called Gold Canyon Community Church. And they actually are part of a, they have a grammar school that they're meeting in. But I just wanted you to see as they come out, there's mountains out there, there's sun, it's green, and it was quite the opportunity I had to be there. More than that, my wife Sharon had the opportunity to minister to 30 ladies. And what was so good about that is that she was able to share God's word and share her heart and be able to encourage 30 ladies in their walk and their journey. What was so unique about this time, at least for us, is that David, who's the pastor there, and, his, and Jill is his wife, I was their youth pastor a million years ago. And that's not so unusual. But what was unusual is that David was from my home church, and I was a youth pastor there. And then I went to a different church, Moraine Valley, a, another converged church, and Jill was there. So I had the opportunity to shepherd them along with my wife at two different congregations. They fell in love, they ended up in Arizona, and they asked us to come and suffer with them. It was awesome really was. You know, every Sunday we are committed to gather here to worship. And when we worship, we sing and we praise and we serve and and we give and we open up God's Word and we're in the middle of a series. In fact, this is our ninth week in 1 Peter. And we just open up God's Word and we're able to hear what God has for each one of us. We're teaching families to know and obey and enjoy Christ so that all of us might be salt and light during our weeks. You know, Peter is nearing the end of his life, and I'm sure the brevity of life is on his mind as he shares with a group of kingdom patriots how to live as exiles, temporary residents, foreigners, sojourners, and yet, anticipate eternity. You know, the first century believers were trying hard to journey well between their two worlds. But life was hard for them. In fact, because life was hard and going to get harder, Peter, for the most part, focuses on his amazing God, on God's grace and mercy, on the relationship that each one of those folks might be able to have with God so that they might be able to thrive during the difficult times, not just eke it out. 
They understood God and having a relationship with God just changes everything. You see, knowing the king and knowing he is sovereign gives you fuel for the day. We don't just think there's luck. We just happen to run into or go this place or have a flat tire. It's none of that. God is sovereign. He is in charge. Today, Peter shares how that relationship with God affects our everyday life and, in fact, affects our conversations. I've asked Willie to come up and read our scripture for today. So while he gets up here, if you can open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 13 and read through 18 and uh, cover that today. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as your Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Let's pray. Father, again, we just ask that you would open up our eyes. We know, God, that uh, this was written a long time ago. But we know that Peter was writing to a group, group of people that I think um, pretty much like us, pretty much like the folks right here in our church. So I ask you, God, that you would be so active today that I wouldn't mess up anything, that, that my words wouldn't confuse and they would encourage, and that your word would be so powerful. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Peter starts off our time with a rhetorical question. Will anyone really harm you if you are treating others well? Well, the answer is supposed to be no. But it does happen. It did happen back then. So he says this. He says, but if it does happen and you do suffer for doing good things for others, God's going to reward you. All the way through Peter, Peter keeps pointing back to the king. Peter keeps reminding everyone in spite of how they're being treated, in spite of the government they're under, in spite of the loss of jobs or the difficult situations that they've been called into, that Jesus is king. And Jesus will ultimately reward you and care for you and take care of you in spite of what you're going through today. Peter keeps reminding the exiles that their world is broken and that they are part of a kingdom whose king is just and active. In the scripture, there's a word that says instead. Instead begins one long sentence. Verses 15 and 16 is one long sentence. Now, again, Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a writer. And he just kept adding things on and on and on. 
But he starts off, and the main idea of this text is, you must worship Christ as Lord. You must recognize that Jesus is King. We've already talked about this, Peter said, but if he could have put it in bold or all caps, he would have done that. You need to worship. You need to remember that Jesus Christ is king. Now, my question is this. If Christ is Lord or king, wouldn't you just naturally worship him? Isn't that something we just automatically do? Well, if you think about it, you probably don't. You, you say that, and I say that often, that, hey, wait a minute, God really is in charge. And I really understand that God's in charge. And, and that he's lent me my time here on this planet. He wants me to manage my finances well. He wants me to just, well, Listen to him, obey him, and serve him with all of my heart. But realistically, even the good folks right here at Crosspoint, we have a tendency at times to worship other things and other people as king. And I don't exactly know what that is. But sometimes we can look at our bank accounts and see what we worship. And I'm not saying there's a one-to-one correlation. I, I think mortgages really are expensive. I'm, I'm pretty sure most of you don't give as much as you pay for your mortgage. But if you do, keep doing that. That, that would be okay. No problem. Okay. But, but you look at your calendar, and you look at your bank account, and, and you look at how you spend your free time, and, and what you invest in. And all of a sudden, you may find out that maybe Jesus isn't king. And that we spend a lot of our time and our money and our resources on things, well, that we want to. So the reminder here is a good reminder. It says, hey, worship. Worship your God as your king. Peter's asking the exiles to refocus, saying, don't be deceived, even though Nero is on the throne in Rome. The real king is Jesus. Now let's talk about this a little bit more. It literally shows if Jesus is your king. You spend your time, your treasures, and talents differently. Relationship with God is critical, so spending time with him is a priority. Literally, again, if for some reason we worship our God as king and don't spend any time with our God, my guess is he's probably not that important. I'm not even trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to say that if someone is important, you're going to spend time with that somebody. Resources are managed differently so that you and I can be generous. If we recognize that our king literally gives us our funds and gives us our employment and gives us whatever he gives us and just says, hey, you're a steward, hey, you're a manager, 
I want you to manage all the gifts, all the talents, all the things that I've blessed you with. And someday I'll return. And I'll just ask if you invested well. That's all. And if you have a God focus, everything kind of goes through that filter. You know, love is our motivator for serving. So our serving is passionate. You see, if Jesus is our king and we love our Lord and we love our king, we desire nothing more than to serve our king. And what happens is is that we don't keep track of the hours necessarily. We don't keep track of how hard it is or inconvenient it is at times. What we do is that we joyfully take the time and the effort in order to care for others well. You know, you treat others the way you want to be treated, which all of us want to be treated pretty good. You respect people, your spouse, your kids, your co-workers, your bosses, your neighbors, those who are under-resourced. I mean, let me just ask you this question. Don't you just love being with certain people? Don't you? I mean, hopefully it's your spouse. That would be good. But, but there are certain people in our lives. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a neighbor. You just know when you walk into their home or you walk into their office or you, you are just so well-received. You feel like royalty in some ways. It is just an unbelievable experience for you. You love going to places like that. We love spending time with people that treat us the way that we would like to be treated. Now, let me just paint a picture for you. If Jesus is your king, you're worshiping him, you're adoring him, he has literally changed your life, you look at time differently, you spend your money differently, you serve in a different way completely, people who know you are going to think you're crazy. That's it. They are going to think, why do you spend all your time at church? You go like, You know, when people talk to me like that, I try to separate it very quickly. I'm not spending all my time at church. I'm spending some time with people, and this is what I do, and this is where we go, and this is how you share. One of the things that happens to each one of us is that when we worship Jesus as king, the not yet redeemed that you hang out with, notice. They ask. They are watching. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, um, Peter reminds them again that, that we all have a privilege to be able to represent God, to bring God's goodness to other people. I just know that if you are walking with God, you are going to be a different neighbor. You are. 
You're going to be kinder. You're going to be gracious. You're not going to be the neighborhood um, gossip. All right? I just know if you walk with God, you're going to be a different employee. You're going to respect your boss even when, whoa, you don't like what he or she is doing. It's going to show. You know, how you treat your wife. It's amazing when a couple guys get together around the water cooler, whatever that means. All right. And they start talking about their wives. Oh, man, you know what my old lady did. Now, isn't that a term of endearment? You know, old lady. I'm not even sure what that means anymore, you know. Um, but I don't think that is like complimentary, guys. I'm just telling you, that, that one, take it out of the vocabulary. All right. But do you know that a guy who walks with God is going to talk about his wife differently than everybody else around that water cooler? And he's going to, or she's going to, treat their kids differently. Your neighbors are going to see it. You know what? If you coach Little League, you're going to coach differently. You're going to treat parents of the kids that you didn't put in enough time differently. In fact, everything is going to be different. And God just simply says this through the Apostle Peter, is that, hey, you're going to be in a world, and if you're worshiping Jesus as Lord, you are going to stick out like a sore thumb. Now, not because you're odd or weird or unkind or insensitive or judgmental. Whoa, that is not how I want to stick out. Oh, there's Rick. He's the most critical guy in the block. Whoa. I, how about there's Rick? I have never seen anybody treat his wife like Rick treats his wife. How does that happen? I know she's a nice lady, but she can't be that nice. You know? And you go through it, and you see. And how do you treat people like Comcast representatives that you're not getting through to for the last month? Are they going to know you really love Jesus? Or are you going to bless them? Let them know what exactly where they need to go and where to stick it. And I know that sometimes Comcast people drive you to that. And you can put in whatever else you want. Now, I'm sorry if you have Comcast and there's a... Yeah, I'm just kidding. Um... AT&T, same thing, and you just put it right in there. And all I'm saying is, some of us get a little bit to the end of our ropes. And we can justify lashing out and lambasting and doing whatever we want to do. It's interesting. Peter starts off, hey guys, I know Nero is our Caesar. I know life isn't so good. I know some of you are losing jobs. I know some of you are being imprisoned. I know life is really, really hard. So I just want to say, would you worship Jesus 
as Lord. Would you do that first? Keep that in mind. Then when you hang out with those who are not yet redeemed, they will ask. You know, one of the saddest things, in my opinion, that happens in our culture today is that we want to have a loving church. We do, and we have a loving church. And we want to be able to share our stories with people accurately and with passion. And hopefully people will come into the kingdom and they will be redeemed. And then they jump into the church and within one year, most of their not yet redeemed friends are not their friends anymore. Not because they don't want to be our friends, but because we only have time for our new Christian friends. Now, folks, you know I think it's really important to have community. You know that. But I also know this, is that God has put every one of you in the places that you're at, in that hospital that you work at, in that office, in that school, in that math class, yeah, that one, you know, for a reason. You are salt and light. I am salt and light. And I think it's so critical that we as believers literally make time to be with folks who are not yet redeemed. To be able to rub shoulders with them. To be able to love them, to be able to have relationships, to be able to have barbecues, to be able to go to places that they hang out so that you might be able to be salt and light. And so what Peter says is that as you hang out with them, when people ask, be ready. Now people ask in a variety of ways. Sometimes they say, Oh, Rick, you follow an amazing God. What is it that I need to do to be saved? Actually, that's never happened. Okay? It never happened. So it happened to Paul while he was, you know, just getting out of prison in Acts 16. But that has never happened to me. I know that people ask by watching their eyes as I shall share stories. Or as people hear about different things, you can watch their eyes and you can see them dance. You say, hey, I think I can go a little farther. I can share a little bit more. People sometimes ask verbally, hey, you know what? I just know you lost a loved one. And yet, I know you grieve, but you grieve differently than anything I've ever seen. Can you tell me why? Hey, you know what? You lost your job. And... I know it was unjust. Can, can you tell me how you deal with that? Hey, you know what? I know your daughter. Whoa. She just left. And your house is a wreck. But somehow you and your wife are, are moving forward. Can you let me know where's that strength come from? Now, those are amazing opportunities. And most of the time, it's always around tragedy. No one ever says, hey, I saw you won the lotto. You, won, you know, you come home with $56 million. How are you dealing with that? 
you know, or can I have some of that, <laughs> or something like that, you know. But we, in just normal times, around the picnic table, how do you address your kids and your wife? And people are watching. They're noticing. And Peter gives us a little bit of an, uh, uh, I guess, a clue. He goes, always be ready to share your story of grace. We all have a story. But when you share your story, be gentle and respectful. Be gentle and respectful. You see, gentle is a strength. Most guys, again, if you would say, hey, I would like to be described like this. Gentle for guys is not a big on the, on the list. Okay? It's not very high. You want to be strong and powerful and always in control and all those other important things, you know. Gentle's not there. Gentle are, is more like, uh, you know, like for those uh, sissies, you know. Gentle is an amazing quality, especially for a guy. I remember growing up, um, I, had a, I had a friend named uh, Mike Collins. Mike was a guy who um, went to grammar school with, went to high school with. He ended up being a male nurse. Now, I know we have male nurses around and some really good people. But when I grew up, like, being a male nurse, are you kidding me? Like, be a carpenter, you know? And it was so cool because Mike changed the whole paradigm for me on what it meant to care for people. My wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, got in a pretty serious accident. Uh, I was driving. But um, she ended up getting her spleen removed, and and there was a long uh, recovery. And one of the things I remember is Mike Collins and how he cared for my dear girlfriend, who I eventually was going to marry, and I didn't have a clue. I didn't understand anything. I tried to make her laugh, and when you just lost a spleen and have broken ribs, that's a wrong thing. How long does it take for you, Rick, shut up? You know? And there's Mike, you know, holding her hand and dotting her forehead and, and making sure that she is cared for. That taught me something about gentle. And I think, again, that's what happens as you walk with God. You learn different things. We need to be respectful. I, up on the screen, I'm going to put Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Paul says the same thing. He said, I want you to live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you might have the right response for everyone. You know, we as Christians have poor reputations because sometimes we love cramming things down people's throats rather than being attractive and gracious and gentle. You know, keep your conscience clear. I think Peter is saying this so you don't have to apologize. 
The conscience is like a skylight, not like a lamp. It merely lets moral light in. Evangelism, to me, is basically sharing good news. Most of the time, though, we have a different picture of evangelism. When I was growing up and all the way through my earlier ministry years, it was always me almost going to somebody cold turkey. It could be at O'Hare. It could be at Grand Central Station. It could be going door to door, knocking on the door with my four spiritual laws. Now, I do think some people came to faith. But I think most of us probably are scared stiff at this cold turkey approach. I'm not so sure God has actually called us to cold turkey. I think what God has called us to is, how about you making some unbelievable relationships with the people around you? Let them see who you are. Share with them the hope in your heart. And when they ask you, you are going to be able to share the good news. We don't share about Jesus or the good news because sometimes we think we're not smart enough or we won't have the answers or we don't have the time. This is a big deal for me. I know if I talk to certain people on my block, I'm not going to get back into the house for another 20 minutes. But Rick, it's really important that you take 20 minutes and go talk to your neighbors. Whoa. You know, sometimes it's awkward because our lives don't match our words. Sometimes when we talk about trusting God or loving God, and we really aren't trusting God and loving God, sometimes we feel a little bit like a hypocrite. But what I'd like to just share with you, let's look at being a herald a different way. We are really people who struggle well with life together. Folks who are sharing with others about the bread of life. We've met Jesus. He has changed us right now and given us a purpose. And we have the unbelievable opportunity to spend eternity with him. Your experience and every one of you have an experience is a story. And nobody can argue with your story. You all who have been saved have been saved from an empty life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. A life that we inherited. So you can share about your redemption. And I would even encourage you in a very real way that you have a 30-second story, a 3-minute story, a 13-minute story, and you can just go on. Whenever I talk about my Lord or my relationship, again, I'm watching people's eyes. That's why it's really hard when they have sunglasses. But if they don't have sunglasses, you can watch their eyes. And if I share for 30 seconds and their eyes are still dancing, I can go for three minutes. And if their eyes are still dancing, I can go for 13 minutes. And I can just keep talking about who God is and what God has done and how my life has changed as a result of how much they're receiving. But if I see the eyes go dim, I want to be able to transition and just count on God to take them the next step. You see, the greatest gift you can give a person is to introduce them to Jesus. If they respond, their lives are totally different right there and they get to spend eternity with God. 
You know, there's this guy named Bill Hybels. Some of you have heard of him. He's in a smaller church a little bit south of here. If you've ever been around Bill Hybels or read any of his books, the man is just passionate about sharing the good news with lost people. I love, I, I mean, he still cries when he talks about people coming to faith. How cool is that? He says this, and it's a quote that, that just kind of sears right through me. He said, every person I know would be better off if Christ were at the center. That's where he starts off. He goes, the reason I am so bold and the reason I want to share so much is that I know that person's life will be different. It just will. Peter emphasized being gentle and respectful always. And that happens when we walk with God by means of the Spirit. Sure, I think some training is important and valuable, and maybe you'll learn to do some diagrams, or maybe you need to memorize six or eight or ten different verses. I think that's all critical. I do, because you never know when you have opportunities. But I'm saying that your story in meeting Jesus is an amazing story, and you have an opportunity to be able to share it. Now, in the context, and if some of you are looking at your watches, you're going, well, you know what, Rick? Um, actually, there's a little bit more to this text. And Peter ends this section. The reason I didn't have Willie read it is because I think this may be one of the top five hardest sections in the Bible. Maybe the top three. Maybe the top one. And I've left three minutes for it. All right. And the reason I have is that I do think Peter ends this section with some confusing and well-debated words. And I'd like to read it right now to you. But these words, before I even read it, were intended to encourage, not confuse, or divide. So what I tried to do is study this text and bring it to a place where you might be able to understand at least a little bit of it. So I'm going to read it out of the NLT, and it starts at verse 19. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is an effective uh, because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. I can tell you there are some amazing scholars that have um, shared perspective here. So I am not going to put me into the camp of amazing scholar. But what I am going to do is I have translated this, and I'm going to call it Rick's Loose Translation of First Peter 
chapter 3, verses 19 to 22. And I think this will help you, or this will capture. And I'm just going to say again, not everyone will agree with this. Um, But if you want to do some study, you can do that, and, and we can debate it later. All right. But this is what I think Peter was writing. He said, Jesus preached through Noah for 75 years while he was building the ark to folks who were far from God and in bondage to their sin. God was patient, but only eight responded and were saved from the waters of judgment. Baptism is a picture of our salvation, life above the waterline. Baptism doesn't clean us up on the outside, but shows you have a clean conscience and have responded to God. Christ's resurrection has made your new life possible. Jesus is king and reigns from above. Ultimately, I think these words should encourage you. They should give you hope. They should give you confidence in the sovereign that God himself is walking with you and giving you words and helping you understand what he is doing. He gives us the words and he saves the drowning. Peter in this text uses baptism as a picture of salvation. It is an unbelievable picture of salvation. If you would, you can go back to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, where the Apostle Paul uses um, a long illustration of baptism, and we don't have the time to read through that text at this moment. But really what, what Paul was saying is this, is that baptism is an unbelievable picture of what salvation is all about. You see, at one time you were dead, and you were under the water, And yet, you put your faith in Christ. And because Christ resurrected, you also resurrected, and you come out of the water, and you have life. You know, for each one of us, that seems, well, it's a a nice little tradition. But Paul reminds those believers back in Rome what their baptism meant. He says, you identify with Christ. His death is resurrection. And that's what baptism really does. Back in the first century, baptism was never an if, it was a when. It occurred immediately or very close to the time you came to faith. In fact, back in the first century in that church, you could say, are you saved? And you could say, yes. Or you could say, yes, I've been baptized. It was so aligned that someone who comes to faith immediately, they would get dunked. Chuck Swindoll has a a quote here. Let me read it to you. To use a modern analogy, becoming a Christian without submitting to water baptism would be like getting married without a wedding. Yes, I know that men and women can elope or have common-law marriages today, but when they do, they deprive family and friends of participation in an important public ceremony. And they avoid a meaningful opportunity to express their covenant commitment to each other. For the rest of their lives, married couples look back at their wedding day as an official mark of their lives together. Literally, that's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is a public declaration 
for the family of God to be able to enter in, well, a journey that you have. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to even look back and say, hey, April 30th, 2017 is when I got dunked. And I let people know that Jesus is king. And I couldn't wait to do that. So as you can see, we have a baptism service coming up. And maybe some of you are ready for that next step. Ideally, I would love to be able to have folks just come to faith in the next week or two or three. We get them into the tank and we let them share their stories of God's grace. It absolutely ignites us. But I'm pretty sure there are some who've been saved for a while and kind of putting this off. And I just want to encourage you. You know, as I wrap this up, I guess here's the bottom line. Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a fragrance when we walked into a room rather than a stench? Wouldn't it be so cool, whether you're with your not-yet-redeemed friends or your Christian friends, when you walk in and people are just excited to see you? You walk with God, you listen to God, and you carry with you some kind of, of a smell. But it's not stinky, Rick. It's really good-smelling, Rick. A cologne that wafts through the room and says, Whoa, I'm so glad he's here. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like sweet perfume. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to share others the story of your grace. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.